1-800-643-6273. Thanks. Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. And this is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. Stay tuned for Wabanaki Windows. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we'll be talking to Chief Bob Bryant of the Police Department of the Penobscot Nation, uh, and his wife, Kimberly Bryant, is also here. So we'll be talking to her as well. Uh, so, Bob... Let's start with you. Uh, tell me, tell me how you. Let, let's just, you know, lay a little bit of history here and uh, tell me how you uh, got into law enforcement. Okay. Well, good morning, and uh, excited to be here this morning. Uh, law enforcement for me began, I think, well before I became uh, old enough to be a police officer, and uh, because I had a family history of it. Uh, I had an uh, uncle that served many years with the Brewer Police Department, and I had a, a cousin, first cousin, that served uh, many years in, for the Bangor Police Department. So I had exposure to it at a young age, and of course, other uh, aspects of it was watching some of the shows back in the 60s and early 70s that uh, piqued my interest. And so I always had that in mind and, and, and again had that exposure to it so uh, it was something I talked about as a, as a young boy and I sort of went away from it for a while, uh, went into the military for a short period of time and when I come out uh, I, I decided that, that was the path I, I really wanted to take and so I, I did that by first taking some courses at the uh, Bangor campus, University of Maine, and I had, uh, the other connection I had was I had a brother-in-law at the time who served at the uh, Penobscot Nation as a police officer. Uh, no, who was that? Uh, Dale Lola. Oh, Dale, oh, that's right, okay. And Dale was uh, someone that I, uh, you know, I grew up around. Uh, he uh, was around my household in, in Bangor. Uh, making the trek from Indian Island, sometimes just hitchhiking, uh, sometimes taking vehicles that would get him there. But uh, he ended up getting into law enforcement. So uh, he approached me one day while working uh, at the University of Maine uh, as a custodian and asked me if I would be interested in coming on uh, as a reserve officer, which that began my career in law enforcement. So how long have you been in law enforcement? I'm now going into my 25th year, which... Uh, we were just talking about that, yeah. weren't we? Did a little chuckling earlier. Yeah, we have, uh, we have uh, Kimberly Bryant here as well. Um, 
I kind of remember that uh, 25 years ago, and I was police chief, and, uh, and you were working for me. Remember yeah, that's that? Cr- that's correct. <laughs> and so was Kimberly. Yeah, we both were. Yes, uh, that uh, it seems like it was yesterday. It does. It does. And you've been married for how long? It'll be 24 years in August. 24 years in August. And how did you meet, need I ask? Uh, Well, you hired me as a reserve officer, and I met Bob. And we became friends and uh, married just a few months later. Yeah. All on, all on the police force. That's right. <laughs> you came in one morning, and there we were, Mary. Surprise, surprise. As a, uh, just as a funny note to that, uh, prior to Kim joining as a dispatcher and a, and a uh, reserve officer herself, uh, I did a traffic stop one night, and uh, there was another officer riding with me, and he went up to the vehicle, and Kim was driving. I forget if she was speeding or... It accidentally uh, run a stop sign, but in any event, uh, <laughs> we chuckled later, and I said, well, what would have happened if I would have uh, approached the vehicle, and back in my younger days, when I was, it seemed like all was in my head was enforcement, would have given you a summons, and she said, we probably wouldn't be together at, at today, so. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I remember your enthusiasm about giving traffic tickets. That's where he got his nickname. And, and what's his nickname? Blue Light. <laughs> Bobby Blue Light? <laughs> yeah, Blue Light. Or Blue. And yeah. That's, uh, and that's something uh, that I think a lot of young officers can relate to is uh, when you first get into law enforcement, uh, you, you do uh, look at the job, I think, in a different sense or a different, uh, uh, you're to a different uh, light in that, uh, you take that latter part of it, the enforcement is thinking that's what the job all entails when in, in fact it, it's uh, a larger picture when it comes to servicing the population. So, uh, right. uh, well, there's, you know, there's a, there's a letter of the law and a spirit of the law. Yeah, but there's yeah. also, uh, you've got to know that you have discretion, you have to balance that and uh, use that discretion wisely. And uh, So I think that's the key to a, a well-balanced uh, police officer. And a well-balanced uh, police chief as well. Yeah. I'm not saying you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, uh, I hope that I've, I've gained that over the years. Because I, 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 think, I think you have. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So you're... Uh, you're uh, you're working in the police department, and you, how long, how long was it? Uh, you, you, you were there for how many years? I was a little bit, uh, a little over three and a half years before I ended up uh, moving to a municipality just down the road from Penobscot Nation. Uh, I ended up going to the town of Orono for uh, about 13 and a half years before returning back to the Penobscot Nation. Wow. But then, and then you, uh, oh, and by the way, Kimberly, I forget. Now, how long were you, were you on the force as a reserve? Um, I started January of 87, and I think it was in 89, um, 
I had my first son, and when I had him, that was when I decided to stay home and raise my children. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of years on the force, and uh, then I know that you uh, you went. What were the other police departments you worked for? Hey? Well, I actually those were the the two, and uh, I uh, I think one of the the uh, important things that happened to me in my law enforcement career, I think that uh, assisted in me and uh, so that I was ready for the position as a police chief was I, I was able to work for uh, several different uh, police chiefs uh, and that with anybody, we all have our different styles of management and I was able to work for I, I'm looking back, I, I, you know, you were my first boss, and then I had, uh, I, I believe, about three police chiefs that I worked for at uh, the town of Orono. And so I was able to look at, you know, what was, uh, I felt was successful in their management styles and some of the things that weren't so successful. Uh, so I was able to, to draw from that those experiences and say, you know, what I think would be effective when I became, you know, the head of an agency. And I think that was paramount in that uh, uh, I was able to take those uh, leadership traits and, 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 and put them forth in what I'm doing to this day. Yeah, so you, um, you, after your, uh, um, you worked for Orono, Correct. Uh, yeah, it was right after that that you started working for back uh, for the tribe as a police chief. Oh, I came back in two thousand and three as a patrol officer and uh, took on the responsibilities as the tribe's investigator, criminal investigator, because I had served that role with the town of Orono as a uh, detective sergeant there, which I had the responsibilities for criminal investigations and day shift supervisors. So I came back and uh, uh, began that role with the, with the tribe and I did that for several years and then in two December of 2006 I, I became the interim police chief and was appointed uh, police chief uh, full-time in April of 2007. So I think that uh, looking at my career, I sort of did almost uh, the, uh, a well-balanced uh, from doing patrol work to, to investigative work to even working in the schools as a DARE officer and being a first-line supervisor. So I think that was important to having all that experience to draw back on. So. Okay, so you started uh, in 2007, you're saying, as police chief? Right. Uh, so what, uh, ex describe the department when you became police chief. Well, the department size-wise hasn't changed much since, I think, back when I started working for you in uh, 1986. And we are a department that uh, is mainly a, a one person patrol, uh, we do a 24-7 patrol, 24-7 dispatch. Um, we have uh, four full-time 
patrol officers, uh, a police chief, and several reserve officers that we use to supplement when we have to draw to, for extra coverage or to cover for a vacation or somebody that may be out on sick leave. And we have a full-time dispatch with also reserve dispatches to serve that same function uh, to cover shifts when needed. Uh, so we mainly, as I said, we are a uh, one-person patrol uh, most of the time, and we provide a, a valuable service for the Penobscot Nation uh, in the area of not only law enforcement, but uh, is a service of uh, community type of uh, policing because we receive many different calls throughout the year that some would might say that you know isn't uh, law enforcement or police related but we survey uh, a purpose for uh, a many different uh, right. reasons okay we'll get back to that I know where you're going with that but we'll get back <laughs> to that in a minute <laughs> uh, what's the uh, the area you serve, how, how large an area? Uh, Geographic-wise, uh, you know, I, I've heard different people tell me the, the size of it, the Indian Island. Uh, I think uh, around the island itself is a, approximately about five miles around, uh, approximately, I think, about two miles wide at, at its widest point. Uh, Population-wise, it's uh, six, uh, 600 residents live on the island. Um, uh, the tribal population census itself is, is around uh, over 2,000, but just on the reservation itself, there's 600 uh, people. Mm -hmm. And what's, the, uh, what's the, the, the crime statistics? What do they look like? You know, one of the things that uh, I looked at when I did take over was, you know, that being an important uh, objective is with any police chief, they look at uh, what's going to get the most uh, notoriety and crime obviously is one of the things you try to address. Uh, you know, with any community, we have uh, crimes of different natures, whether it's uh, uh, domestic violence as with any community or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, thefts or, or burglaries. We don't have a high crime rate, uh, which I'm happy to say, and, and I'm, I'm, I take pride in that. I think that's changed since in, for in 24 years, I think. It, it, it changed yeah. a lot, I, I yeah. think. Uh, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, I know when I worked for you, I, Be I careful. Look, <laughs> looking back, uh, it seemed like it was busier back then. Um, and uh, we relied solely on each other for when we needed that additional help. And I think that's changed a lot in that uh, we have pretty good working relationships with, with the neighboring communities. I think uh, the other thing, too, is... Um the qualifications of the police officers. You want to talk about that? The you know, the qualifications are like with any municipality and that we have to be state certified through the Criminal Justice Academy. And I know, and I'll relate a little bit to how I began, and I think a lot of officers in this state can relate to this years ago. 
including yourself. Uh, uh, one of the things that's changed with the state is the uh, certification of reserve officers. And that uh, I know that there's been a, a, a change for the better uh, to uh, make that training uh, a priority that officers are trained before they're sent out there to, to you know. Before they carry a weapon outside on the road, yeah. Yeah, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> because, I mean, with, in my case, I can remember riding for about a week. I had no pre-service or 100-hour course, as they call it. Uh, and I rode for about 40 hours, and then I was out alone on, on a shift to work the road. And, and looking back, I can remember having a lot of uh, anxiety about that. A lot of angst, that. yeah. And so that's changed a lot. Uh, I know the Criminal Justice Academy has changed now that even with the pre-service of the 100 hours, there's going to be a lot of uh, FTO training for reserve officers. FTO. Uh, field training officers mm -hmm. work that is going to go into... Uh, a reserve officer, and they have to have uh, some weapons, more weapons qualifications than they did in the past before they're sent out uh, to uh, become a patrol officer by themselves or even with other officers on a shift. So that's changed a lot. So what kind of training do they have now? Uh, the, the academy, when I went through in 1987, was a 12-week basic course at, uh, was in Waterville at that time, and since has been moved to Vassalboro, but now it's an 18-week course. Uh, looking back uh, and looking now as a, as a uh, police chief, because you always uh, hate to have somebody away from your department, especially when you're a small agency like that uh, we have for that extended period of time because it, it's a challenge to cover those shifts. But I think it's, it's, uh, it helps. It really helps an officer before they're, they're put out there so they're, they're a lot more ready uh, to serve a community than in the past. So, you know, 18 weeks from 12 weeks is a, is a big jump. Um, yeah, it's a six, six more weeks and you think, well, what the heck can they put in you know, for six more weeks. Well, I, and I think they've done a good job in to incorporate things such as, uh, you know, dealing with uh, people that uh, have maybe dealing with calls with people with mental disabilities or dealing with crisis intervention situations. Uh, you know, the domestic violence calls and the way that we handle them changed mm -hmm. dramatically over the years for the better uh, in that our training in that field has increased so that we have a better understanding of how that pattern works and so that we have a, a sense of what to look for when you're on a scene as a police officer you know some of the signs and some of the, some of the clues and, and some of the evidence so that you can handle those calls in, in a better fashion uh, so a lot of those things, uh, I think, has been incorporated in the, the training at the academy, so the, you have a bit more rounded officer. Do they have, like, uh, they have diversity training? You know, how to handle, like, different, different cultures when you stop 
when you stop them or whatever. I know they had they had one. I think they had one s- section of training when when I was here, like uh, fifty years ago. <laughs> do they still have it? They do, and you know it's and one of the things is they rely on each agency to to you know touch upon that on a uh, annual basis, and that's something that we do. Uh, we try to uh, we talk about you know hate bias crimes. We talk about you know civil rights issues. Uh, you know, we talk about the diversity in that. Uh, you know, Maine has changed, I think, over the years uh, that, uh, you know, there are a lot more minorities uh, living in Maine than they have in the past 20 years. So I think that's important for that training to be, uh, to take place mm-hmm. because officers have to have that understanding. Yeah, now on, on, um when somebody explain to explain to us about when state law applies, when tribal law applies, uh, I get questions about that a lot. So, you know, that's and that is a big challenge for for the Penobscot Nation Police Department in that, you know, whereas we rely heavily on reserve officers and we draw from the non-native community to come in and, and to fill that void so that they understand that uh, we work within a two-court system and that we work with a state court system and a tribal court system. And uh, that the in, I try to break it down as simply, uh, simplified as possible in saying, you know, when you're dealing with a perpetrator and a victim that is involved in a crime, uh, a perpetrator has committed a crime on a victim that is from a federally recognized tribe, both are from a federally recognized tribe, and it is a uh, misdemeanor crime, meaning that it's uh, punishable up to 364 days uh, and a fine of $5,000 or less, then it jurisdiction falls within the tribal court. If it is a a uh, crime with that same aspect person is of a federally recognized tribe and it's punishable of more than 364 days or of a fine more than greater than 5000 then it falls within the state jurisdiction court now what <laughs> when you throw into the mix or say you have a a perpetrator that is from a federally recognized tribe but your victim is a non-tribal member, then it's under the jurisdiction of, of the state court, whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor. Now, when we talk about civil infractions, uh, traffic cases, the tribal court holds the jurisdiction, whether they're a native of a federally recognized tribe or a non-tribal member. So to try to get that understood to officers when they first come on board is, you know, is challenging. So we have a lot of training in that. And so I tell them, you know, your job is a lot tougher when it comes to that aspect of it, to keep that balance and understanding of where that jurisdiction lies. 
than it is if you just worked in another municipality within the state. Yeah, because it's like you're, you're, you're working two different jurisdictions with two different sets of laws sometimes, although a lot of our laws coincide with state law. But we do have some of our own tribal ordinances, which are different. Um, so, I, yeah, I imagine that it is confusing for, well, yeah, for everybody, actually. And even for, uh, you know, officers that have been on for six months, up to a year, you know, I still will get a phone call at my residence, you know, after hours or on a weekend and say, look, you know, chief, I've got this scenario going, you know, you know, where's, what court do I summons them to, you know, what court? And so I still, you know, receive those phone calls and, uh, I tell them, you know, sometimes they apologize and I say, don't apologize. You have a tough job, you know, right. trying to understand that when, say, if you worked in just a local town off the outside the Penobscot Nation, you understand, you know, everything goes to state court. Mm. Now, are there times when um, you call in other uh, police departments? Yes, we have, uh, you know, we have mutual aid agreements. Uh, you know, we have it with the town of Old Town. We have a mutual aid agreement with, you know, the Sheriff's Department. We may call upon them to assist us from time to time and you know we even rely a lot on the state police to to assist us uh, keeping in mind that we are uh, self-determination you know we have we fall within the self-determination act and that we provide solely the law enforcement for the Penobscot nation but uh, you know I, I I understood when I took over you know I'm limited in resources you know whether it's manpower whether it's uh, uh, financial resources so that, for example, if I have a, a case involving uh, child abuse, uh, you know, because we don't handle that many child abuse cases over a, a period of time, you know, it does a disservice if I try to have one of my officers, you know, handle a case, for example, if they have to fall upon like the forensic interviewing techniques of a child abuse victim. Uh, they may have had training four or five years ago, but if you don't do that type of case on a regular basis, then you're doing a disservice not only to the victim, you know, but you're doing a disservice to that officer to ask them to you know, participate in, in, in that type of investigation. So I'll draw upon the state police to say, you know, I need your assistance on this case uh, because they have investigators that, you know, handle those types of cases on a regular basis. So they're more than willing to, to come in and assist. And, you know, I communicate that with the district attorney's office and with the head of the CID of, of the state police. So they're, they're a huge asset in helping us in that area. Uh, as with Old Town, you know, we have as again, we will have one officer on if, if we have a call, for example, let's say you had a domestic violence call, which is, you know, known as one of the most dangerous types of calls an officer can respond to. Uh, most agencies, for example, when I worked for Orno, we would never respond alone to that type of call. You always had two officers responding, and for good reason. So we will 
rely on Old Town to assist us in a call like that. Uh, you know, they've in turn asked for our assistance if they get backlogged on calls and they need something for traffic direction for an accident or something of that nature, uh, they'll call upon us. But we, we usually use them more than they use us, and, you know, rightly so. Mm. So you've uh, introduced some special uh, programs since you've been police chief. You want to talk about a couple of those? Uh, one of the things I did when I took over was I, I drew from my experience uh, as a patrol officer, as a first-line supervisor, and again from the, the different police chiefs that I, that I worked for. And I, I knew after working in law enforcement for a period of time that it was uh, much more than your job entails much more than enforcement. I think enforcement's even less than 10% of what you do. So I know, I knew uh, from my experience that, you know, to service a community, you have to understand what the issues are. Thank you. you hold that thought for a minute. Sure. All right, you're listening to WERU, Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. We are talking today with Police Chief Bob Bryant and uh, his wife, Kimberly Bryant. Hey, Bob, go ahead. So looking at uh, how I could best effectively service the Penobscot Nation, I, I knew in my heart that uh, it was about understanding what the community had for issues. And to do that, you have to have the people at the table and, and talk with them and say, you know, what would you like for a type of police service, uh, what are your issues, and have them be part of the solution to resolve those issues before they become major problems. Now, keeping in mind that we're still, there's still laws that you have to uphold and you have to enforce, but to have the people tell you, listen, this is what's important to us. So I said, that's the transformation that we had to make. We had to become more community-oriented um, you know, and I understood that if you have a, a staff of people that did a certain thing for a period of time, it, it was going to take time to, to make that adjustment, as with anything. Some, a lot of folks... Uh, uh, so, I mean, you, <laughs> you were working with police officers as well. Right. Uh, who were really not uh, sort of used to uh, being overly uh, people-friendly, <laughs> although they, although, I, you know, things have changed since, since I've been there. And, w you know, in, in my time, police officers weren't all that, uh, you know, nice to people, I guess. And I think over the years, that's, that's changed as well. So, um, well, I, well, I tried to, to say uh, one of the selling points I, I tried to get across to the staff was, you know, if you become more proactive rather than reactive, and I know that that's been spoken a, a lot out there in law enforcement, but, but it's true, and that you can't work as an isolated uh, entity, whether it's for the tribal government or a local government or for a state government. And when I say an isolated entity is when you have a problem in a community, uh, you, you have to look at it as 
that just that it's a community problem, not just a law enforcement problem. It's not just a social sh services problem or a, you know, a public works problem. And when you take that approach and say, listen, let's bring everybody to the table and see how we can best resolve this. And that was one of the points I tried to get across. So did everyone, did, what did you get for uh, input from the community? when you Did you have like a bunch of uh, small meetings or? Uh, I first thought, you know, the best way to do this is we're going to have to have some insight and, and some training in this. So, so the folks in not only the law enforcement officers, but uh, other tribal departments and the community members understand the premise behind it and, and why it will work and how it will work. So I ended up reaching out to uh, the Department of Justice, and it took about six months, but I coordinated a training to come to the Penobscot Nation. Now, the DOG, you, did you apply for a grant from the DOG for that? or? Uh, <clears throat> after the training I did, and, uh, I, and which I think was another component. So DOG came and did training? On community policing. Okay. Department of Justice came. Uh, they sent a couple of trainers that had worked exclusively in Indian country because I wanted something that was tailored towards our community mm -hmm. rather than just a generic approach because yeah. I thought it was important that it be tailored uh, for Indian country. So they, uh, it was October of 2008. Uh, they came for a three-day training, and we invited the community. We invited uh, all the tribal department heads because, as I said, they all were going to be at the table eventually in resolving the issues that we faced. So we had the training, and one of the things that we did was uh, we had a social at the end of it, and part of that social was we invited the the uh, girl drum group that, uh, and Kim knows the name of the drum group. Uh, Put her on the spot here. Yeah. Um. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll think of it. Yeah, I we'll come back to it. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here making a basket, and and, <laughs> and, and the and that why I say that and I, mm -hmm. why that is uh, key is is I wanted to incorporate uh, the cultural component in the community policing approach, mm -hmm. which I you know I find that uh, very um, very intuitive I guess and and sort of understanding on your part I mean you you're as people may or may not know, you're you're non you're non-native, but you've been in the community for uh, well many years. So right, I've, I've lived in the community community member now for 24 years. Kim and I will be have been married 24 years in in August. Yeah. So I've lived there that long, and you know I know that I'm not a tribal member, but I take pride in being a community member. Right, and and I have. And I have so it takes a, a while to it takes a while to get accepted into oh, sure, communities. Yeah. Sure, and and, uh, uh, and I feel that I'm a stakeholder in that. You know, I have children that are tribal members, mm -hmm. and so and grandchildren that are tribal members. So knowing that, uh, you know, not being uh, naive to know that you know what's important in in dealing with some of the 
issues that we face is knowing that culture is important. And, you know, that's not only true in, in the Native community. It's true in, in all communities. If you fall back on your heritage or your, or your culture to say, you know, especially when it comes to crime, and that I've used that, that approach to say, you know, the elders, when you, when you commit a crime on, in the community, most of the time you're committing a crime against your elders, whether it's property or whether it's a victim, whether, whatever it may be, uh, a vandalism case, you're uh, perpetrating that against your elders because they've lived there, you know, and then they've, they've raised their own children. So it's, it's all connected. So going back to the training, we had that social and we had the drumming. Apid Sizzuk, that was the name of the girls' drum group. There you women. go. So, and, uh, you know, I had a lot of pride in that, but my daughter's one of the uh, members of the drum group. So uh, we had the social after the training. We had the drum group, uh, you know, they performed. And so we held some community meetings after that. Uh, to, you know, talk a little bit more on how this is going to work and uh, to talk about some of the, the issues that they felt was important. And I can remember the, the first meeting we had. And it's like anything. It, it, it doesn't happen overnight, and you can't get discouraged. I remember the first meeting we had, we had five community members show up. It's a lot, really. <laughs> it is. And, uh, you know, I had assigned one of my... Uh, officers to facilitate the meeting, and he's a, he was a non-tribal member. So, well, I can remember when they we walked in. There's this three community members there, and eventually there was five. And he he looked at that as sort of like a failure. And I said, you know, it's not a failure. You know, if we got one person in the room, you know, that's mm -hmm. a success. Yep. So you know, we talked a lot, and we 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 understood, you know, it was a work in progress. And so that was one aspect of the transformation of the community policing. Uh, you know, and you, you spoke earlier about a, a grant mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, following up that DOJ uh, training, uh, I uh, worked with uh, actually my brother-in-law, uh, Bill Thompson, who is the director of the air quality program on for the Penobscot Nation, and he's also the vice chief for the Penobscot Nation. And uh, I had an idea that came to me, and, uh, and I'm a strong advocate of uh, green technology, and I got that mainly from listening. You know, I believe in it, but I also got a lot of it from listening to Kim over the years. And so I thought... You know, it was, I think it was 2008, the gas prices had gone up to mm -hmm. $4 a gallon, uh, which was really a strain on my budget. Uh, so I thought, you know, I've got to do something about this. And, you know, the Penobscot Nation's are stewards of the, of the land. And I thought, how can we send a message as, as a law enforcement entity, you know, to take part in that. So I said, you know, how about hybrid vehicles? Not only would uh, I help my budget in reducing the amount of fuel that I'm using for, the, for patrolling, 
but also it would reduce the emissions and, and reduce our carbon footprint that we're putting out there. So working with Bill, uh, who is air quality, and he's into those uh, numbers and <laughs> all that verbiage for uh, uh, air quality that would catch the fancy of, of some of the scientists, I guess. But we wrote a grant together, and I applied for and, and received the funding to purchase two hybrid vehicles, and he received funding from his agency to fund a, a vehicle for himself. So we purchased the two hybrid vehicles, and then uh, I went further and thought, you know, how can we connect this even more to the community? And so I decided, uh, I, I spoke with Kim and I said, I'd like to go away from that traditional badge or, or star uh, logo on the side of the police cruiser, you know, keeping in mind it still has to say Penobscot Nation Police Department. But I thought, how do we connect more with the community? So I reached out to several community members and, and asked for some ideas and, and we came up with a different uh, design for the sides of the, for the decaling of the, the cruises, which incorporated some feathers and also a Penobscot Nation medicine wheel. That, hmm. And then on the back of it, there was uh, the double curve. What are, those, what are those symbols on the back, Kim? It's curve design. The double curve design. So, you know, and again, remember that, you know, I have to sell this to, to the staff because, you know, you, cops have a certain mindset and sure. it's, it's about, you know, our cruisers should be black and white and, you know, that's what's seen on TV and, you know, you, so I had to, you know, have to meet with the staff because with anything, I, I think it's, you know, democracy, you know, does go to a certain point, you know, ultimately the decision is mine, but still you'd like to have, you know, a happy staff, so I met with them and said this is the direction I'm going and, and this is why we're going to go that way, and so we did it, and we got a lot of compliments, and we still get a lot of compliments. Yeah, I remember seeing that on uh, TV news one night, the uh, the uh, the hybrid pl new police vehicles, and I thought, wow, that's that's pretty good, you know. Surprised me that Bob could think of that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, I, again, and I got to give Kim credit. Uh, oh, so it was Kim, huh? Yeah. She's, she's always been <laughs> the a... The truth uh, be told now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, right from solar power. Uh, she, she still wants me to try to find a vehicle that's going to operate off solar power, so oh, we're so still looking. So you're working on that one next. working okay. on that. But uh, <laughs> I can tell you that I did end up doing a... A, a comparison after a year because I was even interested how much fuel savings did I really save and it, surprising it was like a 40% savings wow and uh, so you know taking away from that I said you know I remember fuel dropped back down to about two something a gallon and, and, and I said you know it's going to go back up again it's going to go back up again and so and here we has. are again. Yeah. Yep. So, so do you ever think of bicycles? <laughs> <laughs> do a lot of running, but not bicycling. But the, we had a bicycle uh, one time uh, when I first took over. I can remember seeing it there. But again, it, it's about staffing and we're, we're one the, person police yeah. department. Yeah. So it makes it difficult to be able to, to, to deploy uh, an officer on a bike. So, yeah, that was an idea. 
that didn't uh, go too far. I mean, we had uh, when uh, there were some bike bike patrols at the university at one time, and yeah, I did it actually. I was a bike officer in the town of Lorno for a period of time. Yeah, if so you have a big area or something, or, or more than one or two, you know, patrol people, you can you can do it. But sure, I mean, yeah. it's uh, you know, especially if, and you see it a lot when you go into the the, the largest cities. Yeah. You see the, uh, you know, the bikes. You see, uh, I've seen them do using the segways and, and a lot of other different modes of transportation to, to get around when, you know, you get the traffic congestion and uh, difficulties maneuvering vehicles. So those, yeah. it yeah. is effective, I believe. Yeah, I do too, but you, we'll probably never see that bike patrol on Indian Island. Uh, <laughs> not in the near future anyway. I'm sure, I'm sure your officers will be glad to hear that. Um, you know, it w talking about the uh, community uh, policing approach, uh, one of the things that uh, you try to do is you try to say, uh, you know, and you try to get this across to the offices, you say, if you have the community come in and, and become part of the solution, you know, then they become an advocate for you. Because I can remember as a young officer, uh, it, especially on, uh, on at the Penobscot Nation, it was like, uh, why are we always under the microscope? With, uh, you seem like uh, uh, sometimes you, you can't do the right thing. And uh, even though you have, you know, that's usually just a, a small uh, group of people that sometimes aren't ever happy with law enforcement, but the majority of people are happy with law enforcement. But you try to get across to police officers, if you bring the community in and work with them in finding the solutions, then you can draw back upon them as an advocate, for example, when you need things, whether it's equipment, whether it's additional manpower. Uh, so I think that's uh, a strong selling point for the community-oriented sure. approach. Yeah. That they know that the, you know, the police of the community and the community of the police. You know, you're all in one. It's not them alone, you alone. You're together in, in finding solutions. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, um, I think there's a new federal law having to do with uh, tribal law enforcement that went through um, maybe the middle of uh, last year about tribal police and diversity or something about uh, this law that law enforcement would not, wouldn't be, this was like a, uh, a, a national law, but it also brought in the tribal uh, law enforcement aspect and had to do with, uh, with, uh, uh, pro high, uh, with profiling. Yeah, okay, yeah. Remember that? I do. Uh, now, that law... Um, does that law have any effect on on tribal land right now about uh, tribal profile? I was kind of worried about that because I thought, well, uh, it, we may not uh, be a part of this law because we were not named specifically. Uh, no you know, and I think uh, there's still discussions on that yeah. and trying to go back to revisit that because that is a, a glaring issue when they wrote that law. And... You know, and I and I have to speak uh, mainly on 
looking at uh, policing for the Penobscot Nation, and when you talk about profiling, you know, there's, there's a fine line for law enforcement because one of the things that uh, you try to, you know, instill in officers is when they're out on patrols, you look for people that look su suspicious, obviously. I mean, if, if there's people out there that are acting suspiciously or, or, you know, may even look suspicious in that, when I say look suspicious, I'm not talking about, you know, a, a race of people or a certain sex. I'm talking about their behavior and, you know, where they might be at the time, at a certain time of night. For example, if you have uh, a, a street that's typically shuts down at 9 o'clock at night and, and there's nobody there, most of your, your homeowners are asleep and you all of a sudden the officer comes upon, you know, some people walking around or, or you know, a vehicle that is, is not normally seen then you, you try to, uh, you train your officers, you try to instill upon them, you know, that's their job to check that out, to see, you know, who is out and about. Because, for example, with the Penobscot Nation, we are such a small community, and after a while you get to know everybody. And the other thing, too, Bob, is not a public, it's not a public community. It's a tribal community. Right. And, and we certainly have control over who crosses that bridge or who doesn't. So, uh, yeah. in, from our perspective, uh, profiling means a total different, different it, thing. It is, you know, and, you know, and I take, and my direction is taken from the tribal council, you know, and, you know, it's my responsibility, and I, it's basically passed down to the patrol officers. I wa want to know who's out and about when, you know, people are in their homes at night and people are arresting because they're, they're expected you're expected to have that place that you can go and you can, you can be a peaceful community and, and, and you reduce the fear factor in people by saying, you know, I'm providing a safe community for you. So I challenge the officers that work for me to say, you know, it's your responsibility when you're out there, it's two o'clock in the morning and there are vehicles out and about, you know, it's your responsibility to know who's out and about and you know what people are up to it and I'm not talking about being intrusive upon people's privacy or intrusive upon people's right to be in a public place but they have a challenge to know you know what people are doing and, and, and know, you know who's out and about in the community and, and as you alluded to earlier you know the Penobscot Nation is a sovereign community and they have uh, certain laws uh, that uh, dictate who's going to be, you know, residing in the community and who's going to be in the community. You know, it doesn't say that it's uh, prohibiting people from coming over and, and, and enjoying the community, but people that uh, are deemed to be, you know, a potential threat, you know, it's our job as law enforcement to, to make sure that we are out there uh, ensuring that they, they aren't out doing things they shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, when I first uh, read this, this law, the the first thing that came to my mind was you know tribal communities are not like uh the regular municipalities across the country and i was i was sort of worried about you know the, the sovereign aspect of this of this law but it went through it went through really quickly and it was uh it was signed really quickly so um maybe it's a good thing that our uh, that the main tribes are not named in this law i don't know 
have to think about that. But anyway, let me ask you this, Bob. What uh, if you could if you could talk about the uh, some of the things that uh, most left an impression on you in your time as police chief? What what would that be if you if you could think of w you know one or two things that. Well, first of all, when you got ready to ask me that question, it reminded me of, <laughs> you, you had like a grin come over your face, and it reminded me when you called me in your office one day, and you said, I've got a proposal for you, and you had a, <laughs> that same grin came over your face, and you said, I'd like to send you to a, a training, and that training was to become a D.A.R.E. officer, and oh, yeah. I was uh, totally enforcement-minded, and now you, you were asking me to sort of... Uh, as we used to say years ago, uh, uh, a sergeant once coined this, I remember in honor, a touchy-feely type of <laughs> police officer, and you had that same grin come over your face back then. But, uh, you know, back to, your, back to that question, I think that uh, all officers go through a, a lot of changes in, in their career. You know, if you make this a career and, and you end up retiring from this profession, I think you go through uh, many changes, and as I said before, initially I was, I had this enforcement mindset. It was all about enforcement. It was about, you know, I'm, I'm the law, and you know, rightly so. What happens? I, I got the nickname Blue Light, which you know now it's shortened to to just Blue, but uh, I didn't get that for the reason of uh, just uh, <laughs> going out and, and waving to everybody. But it, it, in any event, uh, you go through those changes, and, and that all comes from learning and, and experience. And, and, and I think being able to work with people that are, are well-balanced and working with people that eventually have an understanding of, you know, what the important uh, purpose is of law enforcement. We provide a service. Um, it's not saying that we're soft on crime, but the first and foremost, we provide a service to the people that you uh, are there to serve, uh, whether it's, you know, the town of Orono, whether it's the state of Maine, and in, in my case, the Penobscot Nation, and that we provide a service to the tribal members and the community members of the Penobscot Nation. So I, I looked at that, and I think looking back, one of the, the, the things that really uh, struck me was uh, when I first had that uh, revelation, uh, and that was uh, knowing that the community are there to work with you. And, and I got that from a boss. Uh, at Orono, and I think uh, he uh, was really key in making me understand, you know, that's what it's all about. And because, you know, I'd come home at night, and I'd wake Kim up at 3 in the morning. You know, I'd get off at 3 in the morning, get home by 3.30 in the morning, and I'd tell her all this stuff about, uh, look, I, I arrested this one, and, and then we had a scuffle with that one, and, you know, so I get her awake, and, and 
I go to sleep. Now she's up. <laughs> and uh, so. Stressed out. Stress, stressed out. Yeah. And so I think she's even seen a, a change in my approach. A big Which change. I think one of the things, and I try to tell my guys this, is you've got to incorporate some empathy in your job because everybody that commits a crime you know you have to look at you know what put him in that position and i try to understand that i try to garnish an understanding that we're not we're all dealt different hands in life you know and, and if if you can't have some empathy for people then i think that uh uh, you become too callous, and in, in your approach to the job is uh, is wrong, because. Yeah. Well, I will say that uh, you definitely have uh, mellowed <laughs> 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 over the years. <laughs> so Kimberly, what do you have to say? I get about uh, two minutes. So. Uh, about what? Well, it, your experience with the police department and with you know with with uh, Bob being police chief. Well, when he first came back, I was really against him working for the tribe. Um, as you know, there's a lot of politics that go on, and I just didn't want to get involved. But now that he's back, uh, I've seen a big change in him from being uh, reactive to more proactive and working with the tribe. Um he gets a lot of culture at home. My family's uh, big on culture from, you know, a line of artists and poets, writers, painters, basket makers. Absolutely. So, We're going to have them all on this show. <laughs> yeah, and our daughter is involved yeah. in a drum group, which uh, brings a whole different aspect. But he gets a lot of that at home. So when he's out in the community, he has compassion, empathy, mm -hmm. and uh, I feel better about him working for the tribe. So that's great. So we have a great, uh, I think, in my opinion, we have a very good police chief, um, one that has empathy for the community, and uh, that is really key in our society today. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my special guests, Bob and Kimberly Bryant, for agreeing to be on the show. Please join us next month for another Wabanaki Windows. It's the old Swedish meatball, Jay Peterson, inviting you to stop by the Rhythm Ranch every Tuesday at 2, where you can hear music with no expiration date. From jump blues to classic honky-tonk, eastern and western swing, and music from the great American songbook, it's on your community radio station, WERU 89.9 FM.